out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, Nancy Barillet, who has brought a book out titled, I'm Not Holding Your Coat, My Bruises and all memoir of punk rock rebellion it's out on paperback came out last month may 2021 and tells the story of well it says here a catholic schoolgirl girl who went on to be part of the early 1980s east coast hardcore scene and shows um she's going to explain all that in the interview so i'm not going to bore you but anyway nancy barillet the book is titled i'm not holding your coat and um, after several minutes of casual chat, which we edited out, well I did, um, we got down to the reason behind putting this book out. And this is Nancy, who's going to explain it all. Anyway, over to you. Yeah, so I mean, I was out of it for, for quite some time. And I was working as a teacher. I mean, I still loved music. I still listened to music. But I always referred back to my time in punk rock and hardcore. You know, I drew on that so much in my professional life as a teacher. And um, one day, Reverend Hank Pierce, who's kind of um, kind of an icon around here, um, he asked me to write an article on um, how punk rock affected my teaching. And so I did. And then I submitted it to a magazine called Education Week up here at that's really, you know, nationwide United States. And um, it kind of went viral. And then I did an ed talk on how punk rock made me a better teacher. And, you know, when I really sat down and thought about it, it wasn't years of schooling or endless professional development <laughs> or anything like that, that I think helped me as a teacher. It was what I learned through punk rock, everything from connecting to alienated and marginalized teens to the whole do-it-yourself work ethic and raising funds for resources for my school and you know, teaching my students the power of, of the written word and the power of oral communication and of course standing up to authority and fighting back when you, you know, needed to. All that came from punk rock. So, yes. you know, I was like, uh, and, and then I started talking about it in Facebook groups. You know, I, when an anniversary of a show came, I would tell a story and people were like, oh, this is such a great story. You should write a book. You know? <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> and it's quite incredible, you know, and it, it's just funny because funny, both funny and funny just because of coincidence. Just the amount of people who, you know, like, you know, I did an interview with a guy called Keith. West, who was in a band called The In Crowd, and then Tomorrow from the 60s, and sort of spent his life in music, and Donna Gillespie, who's, you know, worked with David Bowie and Mick Bronson, and then she's written a book. So it's kind of great that people, this kind of oral history that has come out, and obviously the 80s is kind of my decade, so it's a bit more like, oh yes, this is great, and it suddenly becomes much more kind of interesting. Though I love the 60s and I love the 70s, it's kind of then the post- punk period that is kind of fascinating and that whole the indie world that started so with your own you know with a bit about your own background how did you know because I'm basically in my mid-50s I was born 64 when when and it was kind of the early glam period when did music suddenly become something in your life that you were suddenly engaged with thinking wow that's something because we had top of the pops in this country 
Yes, and so and we had Ed Sullivan and 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 bands and uh, shows like that. So, you know, growing up, um, I can remember getting a record player when I was five years old, and you know, listening to records all the time: The Beatles, Chubby Checker, you know. And there was always that little bit of a darker side of music that you know I really loved. Like when I saw The Beatles on Ed Sullivan, you know, I screamed along with with everyone else. But when I saw The Rolling Stones. There was something a little bit different about them, you know, and the kinks and bands like that, you know, and different than, say, the Dave Clark Five, you know. And so um, I, I started to kind of gravitate towards, um, you know, that kind of a uh, little edgier stuff. And then by, I, you know, I graduated class of 77 high school. So the glamour was huge to me. David Bowie, T-Rex, you know, Mick Ronson solo stuff. You, that all was like, you know, Roxy Music Sparks. That was all so important to me as a kid growing up. That was, you know, just fabulous. And, and then I saw Iggy Pop because, the, you know, the main reason I saw him, I did buy The Idiot and I really thought that record was unique and, and, and really cool, but David Bowie was touring with um, Iggy as his, keyboardist and so you know I, I had a chance for front row seats so I'm like I'm gonna go and then once I saw Iggy then it was the Ramones then the Clash and then just boom you know it was it just really really took off and and my god you were there at the right place at the right time I'm sure every te teenager has their moment so you know you you know we just sound like you know, it's it's that period, isn't it? But, you know, you think, wow, that was, you know, to see David Bowie, you know, sitting at the side of the stage playing, you know, keys. Oh, it was amazing. It was just, you know, amazing. And I had seen David Bowie in concert. My sister had seen the David Live, um, the one that, you know, came out of the David Live album, but I didn't, I was too young for that, you know, but I saw Station to Station tour and Heroes tour and, you know, I just loved Bowie. Bowie got me through high school, you know. <laughs> I never, couldn't have made it without him, you know. And, well, it's interesting because my first single was Space Oddity and first album was Changes. And then because it was my first love, you know, he stayed with me. I didn't realize how lucky this was for the rest of, you know, my his life. And throughout my life, it was like this kind of strange kind of experience I had with Bowie, which it could have been Gary Glitter. It was that close. But luckily it was a stage was, Bowie. <laughs> yeah, I you feel never the know. same way. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> It, Bowie just opened me up to, you know, not only uh, different kinds of music, uh, music scenes, because he was always experimenting with new things. And so, you know, that brought me into that. And, you know, but his whole worldview was just so different than the suburban Catholic school uh, upbringing that I had. It, you know, Bowie opened a lot of doors and opened my eyes to a lot of things, and I'll always be grateful for that. Yes, he only had to say an author or or a painter or an artist and or a film, and we had to go and watch it. You know, also. right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I can remember when he did. Um, there was a dance troupe called, I don't know if you remember this, La La. Human Steps, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I, you know, now I got to get everything, you know, see these guys that, you know, so just continually expanding my brain for everything. If Bowie said it, then I wanted to. Yes. Lindsay Kent, mime. Yeah. We had to we had to sort of engage with that the exactly. the, the photographic work of Mick Rock. So then, how did you then cope? Because obviously, you know, okay, you're in America rather than the UK at that stage, but you know, 
navigating the late teens and the early 20s is quite tricky and sometimes one does it well and sometimes you can see sometimes it doesn't so how did you manage not to get too sucked into that period because I know from speaking to a lot of people from especially America in the late 70s but, and I suppose it was New York there was a lot of heroin a lot of drugs a lot of people getting completely wasted as we sort of realized that most of the the New York dolls you know and and that whole scene got absolutely hammered Johnny Thunders and and Jerry Nolan so how you know being able to be a little bit cute and know what to do and what not to do is is quite interesting how did you navigate that yeah so i mean you know uh i never really liked drugs you know growing i grew up in the 70s um um i would you know we would drink beer or vodka or whatever you know and have fun at shows like that but um drugs were never my thing so um as as I started managing a band in Philadelphia called Sadistic Exploits and going up to New York and then meeting bands like, you know, Black Flag and Minor Threat. And then I met my husband who really um, was behind the whole straight edge movement. You know, um, he took, you know, the seeds that Ian had planted and kind of just ran with it. And so when I moved to Boston, um, it wasn't a requirement that I be straight edge, but I, you know, I was kind of like, well, you know, I'll give this a shot. And I really, you know, I really liked not, not drinking or, you know, waking up the next day hungover and yes. re remembering what I did and, you know, and not doing anything too embarrassing, you know? So, um, that really, I think, came at a really good time for me, um, the whole straight edge movement. Yes. And, and are you just to explain a bit about what the straight edge movement is? Okay. So it's uh, no drinking, no drugs. That's what it was when I embraced it. You know, it went on to be like veganism and, you know, it has all these, you know, people have different tenants that they follow. But for us, you know, it was not smoking cigarettes, not drinking, not doing drugs. And so, um, I started, you know, my husband was a big guy and he started bringing me to like a weightlifting gym. And, you know, <laughs> back then women did not lift weights, you know, so it was really cool. I was not, I, I was, that was sort of out of my comfort zone to start lifting weights and doing stuff, but I like lost weight and I got in, you know, really good shape. And it's just like, this is great. You know, like I really kind of liked the physical side and what it did for my brain and my body and, and made me just, you know, feel really clear about what I wanted to do. And then, you know, that's when I went back to school and, you know, got my teaching degree and, you know, it, it just, I don't know, it added clarity to my life at a time where I think I kind of needed it, you know? Yes, absolutely. And, and sort of getting into band management, that's kind of quite an interesting experience because obviously you don't sort of get too many kind of uh, apprenticeships. Well, you do get an apprenticeship, I suppose, but it's a bit hit and miss. How did you sort of navigate that period? I mean, at that time, I was dating a guy who was a singer in a band and, um, you know, I knew all the guys in the band. And so like, I was just, you know, hoping that they would ask me to manage the band because I wanted to be a contributor, you know? I couldn't sing, I couldn't play an instrument, but I wanted to contribute to the, you know, to the scene. And so I started working as their manager. And um, and that was really cool because we did some of the first all ages shows in Philadelphia, which were really successful and really fun. And, um, you know, the, again, we learned that, 
you know, do it yourself work ethic where, you know, you wanted to make something happen, you did it yourself and you, um, you learned a lot along the way, you know? And so that was super empowering to me, um, as a woman who grew up in a patriarchal household, a patriarchal city to just kind of be like, well, we're going to do shows and, you know, 500 people are going to come and, you know. Yes. Well, absolutely. I think that, that sort of that DIY ethos for a lot of people, it was just that sort of first experience of sort of, I suppose it's taking the baton, isn't it really? Which is different than not taking the baton, taking that responsibility, putting on something, realizing how much work goes into just what exactly. looks like such a simple thing, which I've realized in life that, you know, you're the person who's booked the venue, you've, you know, you've, you've sort of put your whole reputation almost on the line. And it's um, both exciting and totally scary because you realize just absolutely what you need to do and what sort of person you need to become to uh, deal with all the kind of ha- the hassle because no one ever thanks you at the end if it goes well they just sort yeah. of pick up on some really minor thing that didn't quite go to right but they're but they're never the people who actually organized anything themselves in life they're just the ones who have just been I remember a headmaster at school at one of those I don't know speech day things prize givens he said don't be a spectator in the game of life it was always kind of one of those profound moments really you know because that's so true and I think that punk and indie world did allow people to um, yes take that chance to either be a in a band or you know start putting on club nights which is again you know it's it's it feels like a scary thing to do but then it it, it is kind of worth it because it's a sort of character building experience so then as the 80s progressed what was your sort of you know how did that work for you so so after i moved to boston i helped manage my husband's band ssd control for a while and you know we you know went to california for shows which was really fun because the california scene was just booming it was huge you know and and so that was really great did did some shows in the boston area and and then by 1985 we were out of it you know um the scene had started to devolve a little bit some of the bands that i loved broke up and I, you know, I was just kind of aged out of it maybe a little bit, you know, and that's when my husband went back to school to get a mechanical engineering degree. I went back to school to get my teaching degree. We, we sold all my husband's equipment and bought a stand-up Kawasaki 550 jet ski, which was like kind of like the complete opposite of being in smoky, dark clubs. We were now on, you know, outside in, in, in the sun, on lakes and the ocean, you know, learning how to how to do this kind of stand-up jet ski that was really hard at the time. You had, to pay, <laughs> you had to pay your dues. So, you know, then I was out of the, you know, I was out of the scene. I'd still go to shows and, and see bands that I really liked and and you know if there were new bands that came around. But but that was really kind of it for me, you know. I never uh I never really did shows or anything after that. You know, I uh when Fugazi came through town, you know, like those guys stayed at my house and, you know, we took them around and stuff, but, um, that, that was kind of it, you know, but those formative years were really powerful, you know, from, <laughs> well, it's know, like an intense relationship. Yeah. The intense, um, mm-hmm. degree course. Cause I actually doing this show for years, I realized it's quite an interesting narrative. I've got it down. Most bands have got five years, you know, they get together they have that honeymoon period. They don't know where they're going. They don't know if it's going to happen. For most, it doesn't. They don't go off the, you know, the 
the uh, takeoff really but then sometimes it happens and in this country we you know we had various gatekeepers we had a, a, a DJ called John Peel who had this kind of show on BBC Radio 1 in the evenings who would always play the latest quirkiest kind of left field type of music and then there was also we had the three music papers the weeklies you know NME Melody Maker Sounds so you know they were always desperate sort of for features and then each city and every town would have these you know a club night an indie night mostly on a monday or tuesday or wednesday when you know there isn't (laughs) the only people who are going to go to those shows so in a way the band kind of then gets that kind of bit of exposure in the paper they might get a play on john peel show you know they might get a few dates around the country that kind of gives you that kind of okay let's do the you know we've done a single let's do the album this is all going well Mm -hmm. and that's good you know thumbs up and then it's this sort of tricky second album as you kind of imagine and if any british band ever tours america they often you would come back and say and then we broke up because it always seems to destroy you know british bands quite quite easily really i think no one realizes the enormity and the pressure and just come back completely gaga dribbling and not knowing what day of the week it is so it's kind of interesting you you had a sort of a, a an intense experience as well that then means that you sort of dust yourself down and wonder what what is happening next right that's you know that's pretty much it you know it was very intense and crazy and fun when it was happening but then it was over. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you, you know, because you were just saying at the start, you know, putting this book together, you'd written some pieces. Then did you have a moment where you went, right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna now put this into a, some coherent narrative and and sort of do a project and finish it one day? Right. The first, the first part, I was originally writing a book called you know, how punk rock made me a better teacher, you know, and it was about both punk rock and teaching. And um, almost immediately, I got an agent in New York City. And, you know, I thought, you know, oh, this is going to be great. But what happened was publishers either liked the punk rock story, or they liked the teacher story, they didn't like both. And so that's when I pulled off the punk rock part, because it was, you know, teaching is was still going on this punk rock was finite and I could break it down and I could write about it you know so um I wrote that and um I I was lucky enough to um through a wild series of events find Ian from Bazillion Points who was interested in publishing it and um you know worked with him and he was just phenomenal and I, I just couldn't be happier to be part of the Bazillion Points family um, and it, it seemed like it was taking forever, but then once it was out, it was just, you know, so fast. And you know, I kind of thought like, you know, my family would buy it and my friends and, you know, a couple of niche people. I didn't think, you know, it would take off to the extent that, you know, we shipped over 2000 books the first week, you know, like nobody's more shocked at that than me like, because I'm, I'm really like a nobody, right? Like I'm just a, a, a kid who was in a scene who happened to, you know, be in the right place at the right time for some really cool shows and some really wild, insane experiences like having riots and bombs thrown at me and stuff. So, um, and I'm an English teacher. So, you know, I can sort of write better probably than the average bear. And storytelling was super valued in my family. You know, if you came home and said you had a story to tell, like everybody was listening, you know? So, right. um, 
that was a, a craft that you honed really well. <laughs> like in 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 um in our yearbooks over here, I don't know if you guys have yearbooks for high school. Um, they give teacher superlatives, you know, teacher most likely to do this or, you know, whatever. And I always got best storyteller, you know, my kids, my students would say to me, tell us a story, Miss Burrell, you know, <laughs> so that, you know, that, that was really important to me to be able to, to tell a good story. And so that's, um, I think that's, you know, why the book, I think, I think it kind of, a lot of people that were there kind of contributed in similar ways that I did. You know, they weren't in bands, but they wrote for fanzines or they weren't in bands, but they did a show or they weren't in, in a band, but you know, they roadied for a band, you know, like, and so I sort of speak to the contributors, you know, yes. <laughs> as opposed to the, you know, the, the people that were on stage. I wish I had musical talent, but Alas, I do not. <laughs> no, absolutely. And also, it must feel like a nice way to, I mean, archiving stuff is is kind of quite one of those things you don't really think about when you're younger, but then as you get older, you think, actually, it's really nice to have this nicely put, because it is such a chapter in your life, and, and now it's become a book, obviously, and, and being able to tell the story, and the photographs, which are also quite fantastic in this publication as well. Yeah, I mean... It, it was an enormous responsibility is what I felt, you know, like I felt, especially to all my friends in Philly, that I wanted to do justice to what we experienced, you know, and, and so, you know, there, there are a lot of documentarians in, in Philadelphia, my friend Shava, Chuck, Frank, Lisa, I, you know, I would always turn to them and be like, okay, now, did I get this right? You know, like, <laughs> because I felt like I did not, you know, um, when I first started talking about stuff before I really sat down and researched it, I often had things wrong, you know, because memory is fallible, you know, and, and, and that's one reason I really liked my publisher because my publisher would say, well, you know, you're, you're talking about this record in July, but it didn't come out until August, you know, so you know, I, I wanted to be as accurate as yes. possible. And that was not a responsibility that I took lightly. You know, I tried to do the best that I could in making it as accurate as possible. Of course, it's my perspective and my experience and people, you know, people have to know that. So. Yes, absolutely. And would, would your younger self be completely amazed to see A, how you've turned out and the fact that you've managed to get a book from it? Yes, I think my younger self would be so pumped because even when I was a little kid in Catholic school, I used to like, you know, try to write books and stuff. You know? <laughs> I write like three chapters and then, you know, throw it in a drawer. So it was always a goal that I had, you know, and I, I just recently I saw something on um, Twitter where somebody said, you know, when as a writer, should you give up? You know, when should you give up? And everybody was putting their you know, their take on it. And I said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm 61 years old and I just published my first book and it sold out its first printing in a week. Like, do not give up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Hang in there because, you know, it's, it, it, there's, there's, I don't know, I think there's plenty of stories of people that, that uh, are sort of second and third acts. So, um, you know, if I can, if I can open that door for anybody my age or older <laughs> to say like, hey, she did it, you know, I'm going to do it too, then I would be really happy. Yes, absolutely. And you must realise, sort of having your eye on the publishing at the moment and what's being 
release that that you sort of there with so many other people who've just also brought their books out in the last 12 months like Bob Gruen the photographer who had been mm -hmm. part of the 60s scene he's got his book and I've sort of on this bookshelf you know there was another guy who just did a book called punk post-punk and new wave Michael Greco you know there's just been a lot there's another guy who just did the Texas one so I kind of you know when I saw your book suddenly appear it's like yes you know 35 years suddenly this is all really interesting social history right. isn't it I think so yeah I definitely um, and I saw that kind of happening I saw you know the nostalgia that was coming from the late 70s early 80s um, that that people were interested I saw it in the publishing um, market there was a book called city on fire that you know had a lot about cbg i think it, that was the name of it had a lot about cbgb's in it and and so i said to myself i think people are really starting to be nostalgic for this time period you know so you know i'm gonna i'm gonna write about it you know yes. <laughs> as best well, as i can also, you know and also i think it's about making sense of something that's happened that you have you know it's almost like without sounding corny a bit process you know you're processing probably quite a lot during that Absolutely. time as well when you were sitting there probably having to sort of stare at the window thing right I must stop I must stop writing but you know the memories must be there and you must kind of feel like wow that doesn't seem that long ago but it is 35 years ago so right and, and people say a lot of people say you know nostalgia is bad you know that it's that it's uh sad or whatever but you know if you actually do the research on nostalgia you know through um a psychological point of view it's really restorative and and transformative to to go back and examine the past and look at it and it brings great feelings and it makes people happy and so um if i could do that you know i wanted i wanted to do it as best as i could Yes, absolutely. This is great. Just last question. I mean, if you could have said something to a, a sort of, a, say, an 18-year-old self or 16, you know, there's, there's this kind of something that you thought, yeah, God, I would have liked to have said that to them, or there's something that I've really learned over the decades. I just wondered kind of what that would be. Um, geez, there's a lot of things that I, you know, because I do work with teenagers and, um, I, I uh, when I when I signed the the card that went in the book, I signed it "Make It Happen," because I want kids today and and even my my uh, my younger self to realize that if you do want to do something, you know, you can make it happen if you really want to, you know. And you know, our scene was small. You know, it wasn't. You know, I I, I wasn't. Bob Groon, you know, like right, taking rock <laughs> pictures, you know, like I don't even want to be in the same sentence as that, you know, but, uh, but, you know, it, we had an enormous amount of fun and it impacted me in a positive way um, in my career now. And I see that in a lot of people that were involved with punk rock who went on to become social activists and ethical business owners and, and incredibly cool people who help others. And, and so, I would just, you know, I, I, I just wish I did kind of even more, you know, like I, um, I look back and I wish I wasn't, you know, we were, we were young, you know, we were naive and we were probably a little bit scared and stuff, but um, I, I'm really happy that I had that, the opportunity to be a part of it, you know, yes, you were, you were as fine. tiny as it was, it was a lot of fun and, and uh, it had a long lasting impact. Well, I think just lastly, I think that's why the 80s scene was quite interesting, that there was like lots of very small little things that didn't seem 
anything probably to a very small community but then it, it did you know within it you know from like in the UK we had all these very small little record labels who had a few little bands didn't last for many years apart from say creation records that went on to the 90s but that's a bit of a different story but mostly it was people like you know 53rd and 3rd records or the Pink Label or Sarah Records you know everyone just did it because they were a fan and and went oh that's that and then suddenly it's like oh wait a minute actually that's quite an archive you've built and there's you know so it's it is fascinating your book and I think it does fit in with the whole narrative of what that that time was all about it's somebody putting on some club nights for two years having great fun thinking it's been great made no money and I just kind of need to go back to school or I need to go and do something else but that's my legacy and it's like actually that's an amazing legacy when you look at those posters and you look at those gigs you know you went three you know three really good bands for two pounds you know and you think actually they were really good bands you know and that, yeah. that's kind of an interesting design because there's another book that came out Sorry to bore you, but this one about, you know, a lot of the posters from that period, sure. you know, mm -hmm. and you just think, you know, and, and those kids just made the posters and then you became graphic designers and you think, oh, yeah, you know, because they had to, they, they did the product or the, you know, the finished article and it got out there and they developed a style. So it is, you know, I think you definitely, you definitely deserve to be, um, what was I going to, you definitely need to be in the same bookshelf as Bob. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't love that, but uh, I'm certainly honored that you think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much. Thank and, you uh, so much for having me. It's brilliant. And I'll, um, yeah, what, when I sort of do it, you know, do the show, I'll sort of compose you a link and you can put it there on your uh, um, social media platform sites and all that. But that's been fantastic. And thanks ever so much for sort of uh, giving me thank the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm truly honored to be here. Thank you. Okay, take care. All right, bye bye. Bye. Have a great day. And that was me in conversation with Nancy Barillet talking about her book, I'm Not Holding Your Coat, My Bruises and All, Memoir of Punk Rock Rebellion. It's out on paperback from all good bookshops and also online. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. You'll find it. And also, these have all been archived. And you can find the shows on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.